Is Donald Trump a monster keeping children in cages? Is there anyone left out there who really wants a job that can't find one? Which political party is really waging a war on women? Is legalized marijuana really a good idea? And is the state of California about to crack up? We're going to talk about it here on the American Culture Podcast. Welcome to episode five of the American Culture Podcast. I am Earl B., the creator and host of this podcast. And today we're going to talk about five current news stories that are shaping American culture. Topics today include kids in cages, jobs, 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 Democrat women who hate women, reefer madness, the California crack up, and a bonus item that I'm keeping as a surprise. So I hope you'll stay with us to hear that fun final item, which I think you'll really enjoy. I am so glad you've taken the time to join us. Now, let's jump into our five top stories for this week. The first is kids in cages. Lots of liberal tears are being shed lately over illegal immigrant children being separated from their parents, and I put parents in quotes, and held in detention until their legal status and custody situation gets sorted out. But any discussion of this issue has to begin with the acknowledgement that the exact same thing happened for years under President Obama, and that both Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton supported this exact same policy, which actually stems from a decades-old federal statute, for years. The quote-unquote news coverage of this story has been appalling. The worst of the worst of fake news. The pictures of, quote, children in cages that kicked off the whole frenzy were taken during the Obama administration. I must have missed the anti-Obama protests back in 2014 when those pictures were taken. The child recently put on the cover of Time magazine was never actually separated from her mother. But why let actual facts get in the way of a good story? Now, let's be clear. I don't blame or criticize the children involved in this mess. To the extent that they are actually children and not MS-13 gang members, they are the true victims here. But I do blame the adults who put the children in the situation of being outside the law. It is these adults, whether they're parents or child traffickers or coyotes, who have taken the risk with the lives of these children. And they have put American authorities in the position of having to clean up and sort out their mess at great cost to the American taxpayer, I might add. But it needs to be pointed out with some clarity that the Democrats are being very, very selective in their outrage over children being separated from families because this has been going on in America for a long time in different contexts. Child Protective Services, or whatever they are called in your locale, have been ripping children from their mother's arms for decades for all kinds of reasons. Homeschooling families have lost their children because local government authorities objected to their homeschooling. 
homes that have drug use in them lose their children and are separated. Parents who don't vaccinate their children in some jurisdictions have their kids taken from them. Parents smoking in the home can be a basis in some places for removing the children from their families. If a family or the parents of a family practice unusual religious beliefs, the children can be taken from them. Polygamists can have children taken from them. Families that have guns in the home that are perceived to be a danger can have their children taken from them. Free-range kids, which is becoming more of a popular uh, uh, group, uh, those free-range kids are, that are, who are allowed to run around in their neighborhood without close adult supervision, um, like we all did when we were children, uh, yeah, free-range kids can be separated from their parents because a bunch of do-gooders think it's not safe. And many various other forms of child neglect or child endangerment are also used as justification for taking children from their families. And all of this is done in support of the progressive vision of society. All of it is done in support of the idea that it takes a village to raise a child. You'll remember that Elian Gonzalez was famously taken from his family at gunpoint by the federal government under Bill Clinton and Janet Reno and returned to Cuba. I've had a situation close to me. Woman I work with uh, had a niece, young infant, taken from her mother uh, shortly after birth because Child Protective Services felt the mother wasn't uh, a fit mother or doing a good job. But she loved that baby and she was doing the best she could. Child Protective Services took that child, put it in the hospital, and it died in the hospital a short time later, probably because of the stress of being separated from its mother. And of course, our jails and prisons in America are filled with convicted criminals who have been separated from their families. Our juvenile halls, juvie as we called it when I was a kid, juvie is filled with children who, for various reasons ranging from excellent reasons to dubious reasons, have been separated from their families by the government. Early in my career as an attorney, I had a client who was on trial for rape who looked at me one day as we were preparing to go to court and asked me, what's going to happen to my daughter if they send me to jail? It was a heartbreaking moment for me. It was gut-wrenching. But this is not a new problem. Donald Trump didn't create this. He's just enforcing the previously existing laws and trying to manage a very difficult situation. Meanwhile, Congress does nothing. In part, they do nothing because the laws are actually fairly reasonable compared to the alternatives available. And partly because the Democrats don't want a solution to this problem. They much prefer having a political issue that they can use to bash the president. But thinking about this story today and preparing to discuss it with you guys, brought to my mind a different thread of thought on the whole kids in cages meme. It caused me to ask the question, Aren't we raising our own kids in cages these days? We lock them inside our homes for fear that some harm will befall them, befall them if we venture, if they venture out of doors. We have baby gates all over the house. Our yards, if we have them, are fenced. We keep them on leashes or tethers when we go to the mall. 
If they get on a bicycle or roller skates, they must wear a helmet and knee pads and wrist guards. In the car, they are strapped into a car seat or tightly buckled in a seat belt. They must never be out of our direct line of vision. From early daycare to preschool and on up into elementary school and beyond, they are locked in secure rooms under direct adult supervision. Their behavior inside the classroom is tightly regulated. Their meals are completely controlled by the government. You'll recall that Michelle Obama was particularly interested in dictating what your child could eat for lunch at school. The child and their parents face severe sanctions if an unauthorized snack food is in their reusable, environmentally friendly lunch bag. Kids are permitted into the play yard for short periods each day, but their activities during quote-unquote recess are tightly regulated. Unorganized free play is forbidden because someone might skin their knee or have their feelings hurt. Have you been to a school lately? Are you even able to articulate how a school today is any different from a prison? There are high fences all around to keep the inmates in and unauthorized visitors out. Often there are metal detectors at the entry gates. All visitors must sign in with the warden, or excuse me, the principal. Children can only be released to their parents during the school day for very limited, approved purposes. When I was a kid, raised in a suburban neighborhood that I swear was the model for the television show, The Wonder Years, we would run out of the house yelling, Mom, I'm going to the creek. And she would holler back at us, Be home before dark. And we would go out into the world for another day, looking for adventure. But the truth is that today, we raise our kids in cages, and the liberal establishment is fine with that. Because they don't object to kids in cages, generally. They only object to kids in cages if those kids can be used, like props in a TV drama, to advance their progressive agenda. Second story today, a little more positive note, is jobs, jobs, jobs. Or, as Oprah Winfrey might put it, you get a job, and you get a job, and you get a job. The recently released May 2018 jobs report from the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics is stellar. This is historic news which should be celebrated by all Americans who have spent the last 10 years climbing out of the financial pit created by the collapse of the financial markets in 2008. The national unemployment rate in May was down to 3.9%, a number which hasn't been seen since the year 2000. Even the New York Times was smitten by the good news. They titled a story, We ran out of words to describe how good the jobs numbers are on June 1st. The Gallup poll released on May 21st showed that the average American is more optimistic about their ability to to find a job than at any point previously recorded. And Gallup has been polling this question since August of 2001. In the new poll, 67% of Americans believe that now is a good time to find a quality job. Prior to January of 2017, that optimism number had never exceeded 50%. The May report was especially good news for black workers, whose unemployment rate was an historically low 5.9%, which meant that the gap between the unemployment rates for black workers and white workers was as close as it has ever been. 
Donald Trump worked hard to gain support among black voters in 2016. His brutally blunt sales pitch to them was, what have you got to lose? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. 58% of your youth is unemployed. What do you have to lose? Left unsaid in the sales pitch was, what has eight years of Obama gotten you? What makes you think that a President Hillary will be any better? Exit polls indicated that President Trump received 8% of the black vote in 2016. And so I wonder if President Trump continues to produce good economic news for all Americans, including black workers and black families, how many more black voters might he win over in 2020? How many would he need to win re-election? Barring some catastrophic racial gaffe by the president, which can't be completely ruled out, do you really see a scenario where Donald Trump wins fewer black votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, based on his performance so far? The college Republicans at Stanford University recently held a Make Stanford Great Again event featuring Candace Owens, a young black woman who has risen to prominence recently, spreading a message encouraging blacks to shed their victimhood and leave the liberal plantation. One young black student in attendance at that event stood up and declared, I'm off the plantation, bro, the video of which has gone viral. We recently saw Kim Kardashian at the White House talking to the president about prison reform. We have seen Louis Farrakhan, leader of the Nation of Islam, praise President Trump for attacking many of the historical enemies of black people. Now, you don't really want Louis Farrakhan as the spokesman for your campaign or your party, but these things are indicators that the Democrat stranglehold on the black vote is being loosened. I want to broaden this point a little. It's June of 2018 as I record this. Here in California, we just held our primary election, which set the stage for the general election to be held this November, which means the midterm congressional elections are upon us and that it's fair to start talking about President Trump's chances of re-election in 2020. Now, I'm not a paid pundit. I'm not a paid pollster. I'm not a professional political prognosticator. But then none of those people were right about President Trump in 2016, were they? So how much, how much worse can I do than those paid professionals? So when I look at Donald Trump voters, do I see more or fewer of them than there were in 2016? Has Trump's performance in office done anything to dissuade 2016 Trump voters from supporting him in 2020? I don't think so. Trump has largely rewarded his supporters with excellent performance in office. Good economic news on taxes and jobs. Good news on the international front. He continues to fight the political correctness crowd and is making excellent judicial appointments. After two years of the Russian collusion investigation, the deep state has come up with nothing. The reality is that many Republican never-Trumpers will come home to the GOP in 2020. Those that voted for independent Gary Johnson, those that stayed home, those that even voted for Hillary. I think a lot of those voters are going to let bygones be bygones. Given his much better than expected performance in office, one would expect some percentage of registered independent voters to vote their wallets and their pocketbooks and vote for Trump. 
And as noted above, given the good news for black workers and given that the sky hasn't actually fallen since 2016, despite nonstop predictions that it would, I am optimistic that Trump will actually improve his support in the black community at least a little bit above the 8% he received in 2016. Now you look at Hillary Clinton voters. Will there be more of them or fewer of them than there were in 2016? How many more can there be? Hillary was a historic candidate. She was poised to become the first woman president of the United States. How many potential Democrat voters missed the chance to cast this historic vote for Hillary? Especially when she was running against the vile misogynist and grabber of lady parts, Donald Trump. She had all the financial support she needed. She had 100% of the national media completely in the bag for her. She had essentially rigged the primary elections in her favor. She had the support of the incumbent, President Obama. And it appears that she, or Obama, had the FBI and or the CIA planting spies inside the Trump campaign to gather intelligence and cause who knows what other mischief. But despite all these advantages, Hillary is so bad at politics and so unappealing as a candidate that she still managed to lose to Donald Trump. As bad as Hillary is at politics, who are the Dems going to run against Trump in 2020 that would be as competitive as she was? Joe Biden? Elizabeth Warren? Nobody on the radar right now that I know of has the stature to stand toe-to-toe with a successful incumbent President Trump. And given that there is likely to be a very large Democrat field, much like the Republican field in 2016, the Dem candidate will emerge from the party primaries battered and bruised. Now, it is true that the Democrat base is energized. They have been traumatized since November 2016, and they will be in a frenzy to vote against Trump in 2020, in much the same way that the conservative voters were committed to vote for anybody but Hillary in 2016. But will that frenzy make a difference? The most angst-ridden progressive voters are in states like New York and California and Illinois that Hillary won by huge margins in 2016. Trump never had a chance in those states in 2016, and he won't have a chance to win them in 2020. And as Hillary learned in her remedial electoral college math class, winning 60% of the vote in New York and California doesn't get you any more electoral college votes than winning 51%. So if everyone in California and New York votes for the Democratic nominee in 2020, it won't add a single electoral college vote in the Democrat column. Most of the state's votes in 2016 weren't particularly close, with most races won by one candidate or the other by more than 5%, and often by 10 or 20 or even 30% margins. Those blowout states aren't likely to change columns in 2020. As usual, it will come down to the battleground states, the states that were exceptionally close in 2016. States like Arizona that went to Trump 48% to 45%, roughly. John McCain hates Trump, and he has a lot of influence in the state, but he's very ill and out of office and may no longer be with us by 2020. Sheriff Arpaio of Arizona was pardoned by the president in 2017. He's a very popular and charismatic figure in the state. Might he make make sure that Arizona stays in the Trump column? 
Trump won Florida, 49% to 47%, roughly. That state's probably going to come down to black voters in Miami-Dade. Donald Trump needs just a few of those voters to hold on to Florida. Trump won a very close vote in Michigan, 47.3% to 47%. You know, it's going to come down to black voters in Detroit and union voters and blue-collar jobs voters. How has Trump done among those constituencies so far? I think he's done very well. Minnesota went to Hillary, 47% to 45%. Minnesota's a pretty progressive state. It's the only state that Walter Mondale won when he ran for president. And yet Hillary only carried that state by two points. Might Donald Trump be able to flip Minnesota? North Carolina, Trump won 50 to 46%. I don't see that changing. Nevada went for Clinton by 48-46, but Harry Reid's out of office. Doesn't really figure to be a big factor in Nevada anymore. You know, it's a possible pickup for the president. New Hampshire went to Clinton very closely, 47-46. I don't have much insight as to how that'll go. It's a pretty liberal state. Pennsylvania, Trump won very close, 48-47. Again, blue-collar jobs. Black voters are probably key there. How has the president done among those groups? Pretty well, pretty well. Wisconsin, Trump perhaps surprisingly won 47-46. But you've got a successful, popular GOP governor in place. And again, a key constituency is going to be black voters that Trump is having some success with. Now, to be sure, President Trump really can't afford to lose any of the large battleground states. He needs to keep Florida, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. But right now, what unknown, not Hillary Democrat candidate is going to flip any of those states against the president? I don't see it. The third item we're going to talk about today, story number three, is Democrat women who hate women. Now, we've recently seen a spate of news stories about so-called comedian Samantha Bee using the C word against Ivanka Trump. And I'm trying hard not to get not to have to tag this episode with an explicit language rating. So we're, we're going to leave it at C word. And if you really want to know how vile it was, you can, you, can, you can look that up. You know, Google can be your friend. Not to be outdone by Samantha B, comedian, and I use that loosely, Kathy Griffin recently followed her lead and called the first lady, Melania Trump, a piece of excrement. In just the last few days, we have seen Donald Trump's press secretary, Sarah Sanders, kicked out of a restaurant by the owners, simply because she works for the president. That's the Red Hen Restaurant in Lexington, Virginia. You can find them on Yelp.com or on Facebook if you want to let them know how you feel about them injecting politics and personal attacks into commerce. We've also seen the Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, chased out of a restaurant by a group of left leftist activists. We've seen the Attorney General of the state of Florida, Pam Bondi, and her family, chased out of a movie theater for crying out loud. Folks, the Democrat Party claims to be the party of women. This is the party of me, hashtag me too. A few years ago, Democrats tried to convince the nation that the Republican Party was waging a, quote, war on women. But the reality is liberal women don't care about women. They only care about liberal women who share their exact political agenda. They believe that if you have a vagina, you must vote Democrat, which is, of course, horribly sexist. 
terribly paternalistic, horribly disempowering. They should frankly be applauding Donald Trump's record of elevating women in his administration to positions of great authority and power. Ivanka, Sarah Saunders, Secretary Nielsen. But instead of celebrating these powerful women, they revile them. They revile them. If you, as a woman, have your own independent ideas about how to live your life, they don't care about you at all. If you're pro-Trump, they don't care about you. Conservative, pro-Second Amendment, are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you homeschooling your kids? Are you pro-life? Do you not hate men? Are you a woman being treated as property in a third world country? Sorry, Democrat women don't care about you. The truth is, if you can't be counted on to be a reliable Democrat voter in U.S. elections, you aren't a real woman to them, and they don't care about you. And because you aren't a real woman, you will be treated as less than a woman and are fair game to be called filthy names by the likes of Samantha B, who feels not one ounce of remorse for what she said because she was fighting for real women who shop in all the best stores and go to all the best parties in New York City and Los Angeles. Story number four today is reefer madness. You know, there's a story in the uh, New York Post on May 22nd uh, this year talking about some of the negative effects of marijuana, which has been legalized in several states now. And it's an interesting story because it's kind of going through the scientific literature to see, you know, what we've learned as the states, more and more states have, have legalized marijuana. And they're finding that there's a, a danger of becoming addicted to marijuana itself. It estimates that 3 million people suffer from marijuana use disorder, which is defined as a significant impairment of functioning and distress, as well as symptoms such as cravings and difficulty stopping, resulting from using marijuana for at least a year. They're finding that performance in life and on the job are negatively impacted by marijuana use. They're finding that the number of cannabis-related highway fatalities in the state of Colorado has doubled since they legalized marijuana. And my favorite uh, statistic on the, in this article is that the average number of IQ points associated with heavy marijuana use in adolescence that is lost is six. Adults who smoke in their youth and then quit do not recover those IQ points. So heavy marijuana use is going to cost you six points of your IQ if you start in adolescence. The American Lung Association is finding that smoke from marijuana has been shown to contain many of the same toxins, irritants, and carcinogens as tobacco, tobacco smoke. Um, you know, none of this is a surprise to me. Perhaps it's a surprise to, you know, the marijuana advocates out there. You know, I'm I'm personally quite sympathetic to the to the libertarian impulse. I do have some serious rule of law and federalism concerns with state legalization of marijuana because. Under our system of government, the states can't overrule the federal government on drug legalization or, for that matter, on immigration enforcement. And by having this conflict between state laws and federal laws, you end up with less respect for the federal laws, which is what has led to our problem enforcing the immigration laws these days. But those legal arguments aside, the fact is the FDA would never approve marijuana as a medical treatment if it was being offered as a new product 
by a pharmaceutical company today. We don't know really anything about the long-term effects of marijuana use, but we're starting to get some ideas. And I suspect we're going to find out that marijuana smoke is about as bad for one's lungs as tobacco smoke. And when that happens, I wish everyone luck putting that genie back in the bottle. My biggest concerns about legalized marijuana are kids getting access too early and the legitimizing of pot making it much more likely they will use marijuana as they get older. I do worry about the deleterious effects of pot on society generally, such as driving under the influence of marijuana, reduced productivity of the workforce because everybody's stoned and losing those six IQ points. And I also worry that I'm going to be the one expected to pay for all the problems, the medical problems, the unemployment benefits, the health care from the accidents, all of it. You know, the non-users who have good jobs and pay all the taxes are going to be asked to pay for all these problems. I do believe that marijuana seems to be very beneficial in some healthcare context for patients in chronic pain. If a bunch of 80-year-olds want to get baked in the old folks' home, you know, more power to them. But I also believe we are eventually going to be very, very sorry that we let the potheads dictate public policy in this area. And the fifth story today is the California crack-up. We've got a USA Today article from uh, June 3rd talking about the results of our primary election here. There was an initiative to put on the ballot in California in November uh, a plan to break California up into three different states, California, Southern California, and Northern California is what they'll be called. California being everything from the southern portion of the Bay Area down the coast through Santa Barbara to Los Angeles County. Uh, Northern California being everything uh, above Salinas, the whole Bay Area, Sacramento, the whole northern half of the state geographically, if you just split the state in half, north and south, basically. Everything in the north is Northern California. And then Southern California is Orange County, San Diego County, Riverside County, uh, the Central Valley up through the Fresno area, and everything east. So that's your plan to break the state up into three pieces. And the advocates for the plan, uh, this venture capitalist Tim Draper, uh, he says that splitting the state would lead to improvements in infrastructure and education while lowering taxes. I have no idea how, the, how in the world that is supposed to happen. I have no idea how that's supposed to happen under this plan. Two out of the three remaining states are going to be dominated by the big city Democrats in their areas. The people of L.A. are going to dominate uh, one, one of the, two, the three states. The people in the Bay Area are going to dominate one of the others. And uh, those are the same people running education and infrastructure right now for the whole state. And I don't know, you know, a, a leopard doesn't change its spots. I don't know how they expect that uh, it's going to fix these problems. But the plan's going to go nowhere. The polls are showing uh, voters heavily against the plan. Um, the other major problem is that Congress has to approve this plan, which won't happen because under the plan, you're dividing an existing state into three states, which means the people of California as it exists now will go from having two representatives or two United States senators in Congress to having six United States senators in Congress. And what members of Congress who aren't from Los Angeles or the Bay Area are going to vote that the people of California should have six U.S. senators in Congress instead of just two? No one's going to vote for that. I further have the problem that even if it were, were it approved, 
four of those six U.S. senators would almost certainly be Democrats every time you vote. L.A. would dominate one state. The Bay Area would dominate the other. And Orange County, San Diego would have a very good chance of electing uh, Republican senators uh, in their state. So the Republicans would have a chance of winning two out of six, but they would have no shot at, at the other four out of six U.S. senators forever. So that's why it's not a horrible idea from a, from a political pr- pr- perspective. And the plan doesn't solve the biggest problem. Okay, it, it, it breaks it up, I guess, because with the idea that smaller states are somehow more manageable, but it doesn't address the big problem of the urban and rural imbalance in the state. And many other states have this. The state of New York is dominated by New York City, and the upstate gets pushed around by them. The state of Illinois gets dominated by Chicago, uh, and California gets dominated by L.A. and San Francisco. And that's the big problem is the, the divide between the urban areas and the rural areas in the state and the way that the urban residents push around the rural residents time and time again. And the reason I want to talk about this today, even though it's it's going to go on nowhere, certainly, is that I have a plan that I believe solves the problem. Okay? My plan, which, you know, there's no imminent plan to get my plan on a ballot anywhere, but I throw it out there for consideration. My pr- plan is to break California up into pieces and annex large chunks of what is now California to the neighboring states of Arizona, Nevada, and Oregon, leaving a smaller California consisting of the thin coastal strip running from basically Marin County down to Los Angeles County. The rural and suburban areas added to Arizona, Nevada, and Oregon would have more in common with those states, Arizona, Nevada, and Oregon, culturally than they do with L.A. or San Francisco. Those three neighboring states would see increased power through larger delegations in the House of Representatives, and the net change of representation in the U.S. Senate would be zero. So Arizona would get a little bit bigger. It would pick up some California land, some California residents, some California money, and some California representatives in Congress. Likewise, Nevada, likewise, Oregon. So all those states would get a little bigger, a little more populous, and a little more powerful. So I think there's a chance that the people of those states would support that, and you, you would need their support. The plan's a little bit more complicated to implement, but if you got Arizona and Nevada and Oregon to go along with it, or even just two out of the three, you wouldn't necessarily need all three of them, but if you got, say, two out of three of them to go along, um, I don't see why, why members of Congress wouldn't support it. You might have California representatives in Congress, for whatever reason, not support it, but all the other states, it's basically neutral to them. Um, and I think the delegations in Nevada, Arizona, and Oregon would likely support it. So that's my plan. And uh, I think if you wanted to break California up, and I think California is ripe to be broken up. I feel bad for the people out in the rural areas of the state who have essentially no voice in statewide politics because they're just overwhelmed by the people in Los Angeles and the people in San Francisco who are um, – driving us over the cliff. I mean, it's just terrible what's happening in this state. And I I feel bad for all of us who are in this predicament and don't have any power to stop it. Now the bonus item. So that's our top five stories of the week. Our five top stories. Our bonus item is an article today that I spotted from in uh, on politico.com, which is titled Washington DC 
the psychopath capital of America. Wonderful story. <laughs> they, they break down a, a paper that was recently published by Ryan Murphy, an economist at Southern Methodist University. He says he recently published a working paper in which he ranked each of the states by the predominance of psychopaths. The winner, Washington, D.C., in a walk. In fact, the capital scored higher on Murphy's scale than the next two runners-up combined. And quote from the story, the District of Columbia is measured to be far more psychopathic than any individual state in the country, Murphy writes. There tend to be more psychopathic personalities in denser areas, and the District of Columbia is denser than even the densest state, so it makes sense. The presence of psychopaths in the District of Columbia is consistent with the conjecture that psychopaths are likely to be effective in the political sphere, Murphy writes. The psychopath-non-psychopath binary matches up, with a few exceptions, with the urban-slash-rural divide. A psychopath map of the United States would also look quite a bit like the red-blue political map with the red areas, and those are the Democrat areas, notably lower, excuse me, the red areas are the Republican areas. They are notably lower in psychopathy. So I, I thought that was a really fun story for you to share with your friends at a party. The big takeaway I, that I bring from that is that that article is exhibit number one of to why bigger, more centralized government is a very bad idea because it demonstrates that the more power we give the government generally, and certainly the more power we give to Washington, D.C., the more power we are giving to psychopaths to run our lives. enjoyed this episode of the American Culture Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our show, we are on the web at AmericanCulturePodcast.com. That's all one word, no spaces. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash American Culture Podcast. Again, no spaces. And we're on Twitter at Twitter.com slash AmCulturePod. A-M-C-U-L-T-U-R-E-P-O-D. Our Twitter handle is at AmCulturePod. And I'll note, we're seeing a nice uptick in our number of Twitter followers. I hope you'll follow us on Twitter and uh, spread the word. Uh, I feel like we're getting large enough now on that platform to have a, we're actually having a voice out there in the conversation. So I appreciate that. If you could give us a like or a follow or a retweet or a share on Facebook or Twitter, that would be awesome. Ours is a new podcast and you really can make a difference and help us grow our audience by subscribing to the American Culture Podcast on the Apple Podcast app, on Stitcher, on Google Play, or on whatever platform you found us. If you really want to be a superhero, you could go the extra mile and write us a five-star review. I would be very grateful. I've also created a page at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, for our podcast at patreon.com slash Podcast where you can go to become a patron of the podcast and pledge your support of our work here at levels from $1 per month on up. 
All content of the American Culture Podcast is copyright by Earl B. and AmericanCulturePodcast.com. The views and opinions of the host and any guests as expressed on the podcast are solely those of the speakers and not of any other person or organization. Thanks for sharing this time with me today. Let's meet back here again real soon.